News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, things are very busy in Ottawa these days. Stories that we're keeping an eye on. Well, there's tomorrow, which is the uh, big caucus meeting of Conservative MPs. This may mean the end of Aaron O'Toole's leadership, given the way things have been going. 35 MPs in that caucus signed a letter uh, for a leadership review. He's vowing to fight. That's tomorrow. But today, a lot of residents in Ottawa are still concerned with what they see happening in their city. Now, the protests that we've been seeing over the last couple of days has certainly thinned out considerably. But the ones that remain say they're not planning to leave anytime soon, and that is not sitting well with a lot of residents in Ottawa. For more on all of this is Global National Online journalist Rachel Gilmore, who joins us now. Good morning, Rachel. Hey, Simi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are things in Ottawa this morning? <laughs> well, luckily, it seems like the protesters might be sweeping in a little bit because the honking has not started yet, which is a welcome respite for those of us who live downtown. They usually get started by around 10, 10.30, though, so I'm expecting that the honking will uh, begin again soon. And, uh, you know, just a couple blocks from where I am now, there are trucks in the middle of the street with their wheels taken off. So they are here for the long haul. Okay, and is this just in like neighborhoods? How far from Parliament Hill are we talking here? So in terms of the actual like where they are parked and not moving, it is pretty much right in front of Parliament um, and just a couple blocks around there. So it used to, you know, on the weekend, it was spread out, you know, across the city. Um, really, it, it was really difficult to get anywhere. Um, but as the protest has kind of dwindled down and it's just the those who are planning on camping out long term who are still here, which is a much smaller number, it is really kind of isolated to that uh, downtown core, which is little comfort to those of us who live here. <laughs> yeah. What, what has this been like, Rachel, then for residents in Ottawa having this kind of unfold pretty much right on your doorstep? It's tough. I'm going to be honest with you. Like I, I went and got groceries on the weekend and there's a bunch of people on masks walking around the grocery store. And I spoke with the cashier and he, I made a silly joke about cheese curds and he just cracked up. And I promise you, it was not a good joke, <laughs> but it was just sort of an example of how tired we were. And, and he told me how badly he needed that because of what he's been dealing with, with the protesters coming in. And he said they've been coming in drunk and maskless. And, you know, it, it's been difficult. I have friends who are scared to walk outside. I have a neighbor who has a young kid who he hasn't taken outside in days because he's worried about the child's safety. Uh, so it's really having an impact on the people that live here who really have nothing to do with the protest or the politics. Yeah. And what about the local businesses? You mentioned the grocery store there, but I understand like hotels, the mall is still closed, like Rideau Center is still closed. What kind of impact is this having on local businesses? This is really tough for local businesses. I mean, they were supposed to, especially the restaurants, you know, in the Byward Market and whatnot, they were supposed to open uh, uh, the restrictions lifted on the 31st, right? So this is actually supposed to be a really good week for them. But quite a few of them are choosing to remain closed or, you know, are having difficulties with their staff getting into the downtown core um, or feeling unsafe getting into the downtown core. Also, the honking, you know, incessantly happening is making it difficult for them to provide a really nice dining experience. Same with the hotels. I mean, we've heard incidents of, you know, police having to show up and remove people who are refusing to wear 
masks in the hotels. So it's, it's really been difficult for the businesses as well to navigate. And they're also being thrust into a highly political situation where they're being forced to sort of denounce the protests or, or kind of take a side and lest they be the subject of boycotts from other, you know, Ottawa residents right. who are really unhappy with the protests. Yeah, so, so it's really tough. They should have been opening up, essentially. Things should have been getting a little bit more back to normal. That's the irony of this, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like they were all really excited. And, you know, I worked in restaurants for years. It's not like a restaurant just opens up overnight, right? Like they got to do all their prep work and whatnot. So it's, it's tough for them. They really want to get back to normal, just like the truckers. But the truckers themselves are actually making that really difficult for the businesses that are right downtown. Oh, that is a tough one. All right, Rachel, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Simi. That's Rachel Gilmore, Global National Online Journalist in Ottawa with a live report about what is going on there right now. Things are somewhat quieter, she said, right now, but it has been a very stressful day. And the irony is that it's been terrible for local businesses that, according to Ontario rules, were opening back up this weekend. Uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, was supposed to be the day and many of them remain closed because of what is going on. This is Mornings with Simi. I love that song. All right, let's talk about housing in our city. It's an ongoing, challenging, challenging issue. It's one of the most expensive places to live all over the world. But what kind of a part did Airbnb play in this? Well, you know, before the pandemic, this was an issue that we talked about a lot. And now there's actually an interesting development on this front. Joining us now is Rohana Rizal, who's a senior software architect who has been talking about, writing about, blogging about the hidden real estate market in Vancouver for years now. Rohana, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, tell me about this. So the city of Vancouver is being ordered to disclose Airbnb data. What kind of data and why? Okay, so um, if you look at the city of Vancouver license database, they have license for every business that's operating in the city, except for Airbnb operations. The city decided that they're going to make give preferential treatment to Airbnb hosts, and they, they hid that data from the public view. I filed a freedom of information request. And the city denied me, saying that um, for security and privacy reasons. I, I then I I uh, complained to the office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner for BC, and they sided with me and they ordered the city to hand that data over. Okay, and what what does the data say? Uh, it's it's basically lists the names and the addresses of the Airbnb operators. Um, that uh, the names of the Airbnb operators and the addresses of the Airbnb units that they host. Okay, but does it give you an idea of the size and scope of the operation? Like how many Airbnb operations are there in the city? It does. And more importantly, it gives you an idea about how many people are running commercial operations. Right now, we have no idea because that that data is very hard to come by. But we have anecdotal evidence that there are people who run 10, 20 or more units. They just buy a whole bunch of properties and then instead of you know, rent them, renting them out on long term, they just put them on Airbnb. Another problem is there have been a spate of um, tenants being evicted to make way for Airbnbs. And right now, tenants have no way of finding out if that happened, because if they find out that their unit has been put back on Airbnb, they can complain to the residential tenancy branch and they can win 12 months rent as compensation. Okay, so how big of a deal is this? How many Airbnb units are there? Um, the estimates are around 3,000. It used to be close to 6,000 before the pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, the number of Airbnb units came down just because you know tourism came to a halt. But the fear is now with uh, with uh, with tourism 
beginning to pick up again. There'll be a spate of evictions as the uh, the hosts try to get the get their units back away from the tenants and onto their um, short-term rental market. Right. So you're saying it's been kind of steady for the last couple of years, but it's not as much money for some of these people making it through Airbnb versus long-term rental. Well, uh, uh, they're making a way, they used to make way more money. Uh, I'm talking about six times more money um, on Airbnb as opposed to long-term. But of course, the last two years have been you know, pretty tough on tourism, and that's affected the Airbnb market too. So, Rohana, does the data also tell you where this is a bigger problem in Vancouver? Uh, it does. It, it will. It will. Because, um, so interestingly, I haven't actually received the data yet. But when I do, I can I can pinpoint where this problem is. We have we have a rough idea. It's 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 uh, there's a concentration around downtown and uh, kids. Uh, the, the more more tourist areas tend to have a bigger problem. But uh, yeah, this data will give you a precise idea of what's going on. Okay. So, and do you feel then that this is moving forward? Then, if you want to get this data from the city again, like yearly, is it going to be a fight every single time? That's 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 interesting because. Um, on the at the eleventh hour, Airbnb, uh, uh, the company, they they made a legal challenge to stop the city from handing this data over. So it's now going back to court, and there'll be a judicial review to decide if the city city will have to hand the data over or not. So they're basically challenging the ruling of the office of the privacy privacy and information commissioner. Now, if I, I I'm I'm very confident that we will win, and if we do. There'll be a legal precedent, and I I doubt the city is gonna try to run put me through these hoops again. But but you never know because my my experience in the city has been for, for for getting data. It's been they make you jump through all these hoops to get yeah. even the simplest data, and that's that's not just me. Every citizen activist, every journalist. I mean, I, I'm sure you face this too. It so, it is an ongoing issue. But let me ask you then: just this data, then is it for? People who have like legally put their unit on and gotten a, gotten a you know business license for it because I'm sure there's people who haven't done that. Yeah, so there's there's two 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 sets of data. There's one where people have uh, listed their units on uh, they have got a business license, but there's another data set that I'm getting where I know what data Airbnb send in the city. Now part of the data is going to be redacted for obvious reasons, but I will have a very good um, idea of. If Airbnb is sending the data correctly to the city, because there's an agreement between the city and the Airbnb whereby Airbnb is supposed to send um, data to mm-hmm. the city on a regular basis, and I, I will get a bunch of that data too. All right, it'll be interesting to do a deep dive into that. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Well, thank you for having me again. That is Rohana Rizal, who's a senior software architect, but also housing advocate, has been for years now talking about information that now he has gone to, you know, fight to get from the city of Vancouver about Airbnb's role in the city. It will be interesting to break down those numbers. This is Mornings with Simi. That morning rush hour traffic at the best of times isn't great. And when there are protesters blocking highway traffic, well, it becomes a nightmare, doesn't it? Now, that was a scene yesterday on the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge and Highway 1 heading to Horseshoe Bay. In the end, six people were arrested in total, three on the Iron Workers Memorial, three uh, out at the Horseshoe Bay Ferry Terminal. What was going on? Well, they were protesting the preservation of old growth forests. But 
is this the best way to you know, get that message out to the public? Joining us now is Zane Hawk, who's organizer of the Save Old Growth campaign and the organizer of the blockade. Zane, thanks for being here this morning. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Now, Zane, is this going to happen again? Uh, yes, it will keep happening until a few hundred people are either thrown in prison by the BC government or until the BC government ends all old growth logging. So we've paused for a month and a half now, and we're going to be recruiting at least 200 people who are going to be forming picket lines along the highway in late March and are going to be getting arrested multiple times, potentially. Okay. What is the purpose of doing that, Zane? Do you think you're getting sympathy from people by doing this? Uh, Probably not. And when we do this, we are following a historical tradition that was followed by the suffragettes and by people in the civil rights movement who weren't simply what I call doing bad things to bad people by being outside the KKK offices or being outside the offices of the bad congressmen. Wait a minute. You're you're likening the civil rights movement to what you're doing right now? Well, in this case, we're actually dealing with the collapse of civilization. So it's a hundred times worse what we're dealing with right now with the climate catastrophe. With the civil rights movement, if uh, people fought really hard and they lost this year, they always have the next year to fight again. But with the climate emergency, we don't have that luxury. Sir David King, who's a former chief scientific advisor to the British government, has said we've got three to four years left okay. before, uh, before we lose the chance to save humanity. But Zane, I think a lot of people would agree with you that climate change is definitely something that needs to be dealt with. But what I'm wondering is the way that you're dealing with it, is this the best way to get people on side? Well, the fact of the matter is that we've been marching and petitioning and doing banner drops for the past 30 years and carbon emissions have gone up by 60 percent. So if people have better ideas, like I'm open to them, but we don't have that option. And we need to remember that when Martin Luther King died, he had a disapproval rating of 75 percent. We know that when people are dealing with entrenched power historically... I also, honestly, I don't think it helps to compare what you're doing to Martin Luther King, because I think a lot of people would not see that equivalency there. Well, like I said, again, Sir David King has said that we've got three to four years left to save humanity. What we're dealing with here is an an extinction event. Like the governments of the world have been putting a poisonous gas in the Earth's atmosphere for the past 30 years. And it's going to lead to increase in two degrees of global average temperatures, which could very well result in the collapse of civilization, as Sir David Attenborough said. Okay, so, so tell me what's happening right now then, Zane. You're actually actively, what, looking for more people to help you do this? Well, we don't need most of the public. We don't need half of the public. We know that the suffragettes were hated by most of the public. You, when you're dealing with a way of life that's destroying the, uh, the, the country and the world, what you need to do is, what we know from the civil rights movement and the suffragettes, is you need to disrupt the public. And that's why people were disrupting the social space of the public, and you have to build up a certain amount of hostility towards you, and that's fine. So we know that we're going to be the most hated people in the country, but that's fine because we're objectively right. And we're going to persist in our transgression. And because we are right, the government has the option to either lock up 400 people in prison or the next five months or implement its own promise. So we're not convincing anyone to do anything. We're forcing, we're going to be ultimately forcing them to. So what is the next step here? So what can people, what should the rest of people be prepared for? Uh, In late March, people are going to be forming picket lines along 10 to 15 points along the Trans-Canada Highway just around Vancouver. And it's going to be done at least three times a week during the morning rush hour. And the point here is to cause economic disruption, but also to have a cultural dialogue about what are we doing 
with our moral values because there's a severe moral contradiction in our society right now where we're sending the future generations to hell and we're condemning them to societal collapse and we're just going on about our day and we need to start challenging that nonviolently and confronting it. Well, Zane, I appreciate your honesty this morning. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Zane Hack is the organizer of the Save Old Growth campaign. So they were behind the blockades that happened yesterday on the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge that generated, you know, all the delays, the backups, but also the discussion. And as you heard him say, there is more coming. What did you think about what he had to say? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Gordon McDonald. Another step forward in a possible bid for the Winter Olympics in Vancouver and Whistler in 2030. An Indigenous... This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to talk about something much more joyful this morning. It's Lunar New Year. And with the new year, there's lots of festivities that are going on around Metro Vancouver that you can join in on. So joining us now is Charlie Wu, the Managing Director of the Asian Canadian Special Events Association. Charlie, thanks for being here. Happy New Year, Simi. Happy New Year to you as well. Boy, you must be busy today. Uh, yeah, we've been busy uh, since uh, last weekend, and um, uh, we have uh, quite a few lanterns going around, and we have a concert tonight at uh, Opium. Okay, so tell me, what kind of events are being put on? Like, in what ways can we help celebrate the Lunar New Year? Well, I think the easiest way uh, is probably go to see the lanterns that we have installed uh, at the uh, uh, Granville Island and uh, Vancouver Art Gallery Plaza, and as well as the West End. And if you are interested, you know, there's tons of activities that we have uh, online virtually, and from fortune-telling to lunar eats and showing showing you how to uh, enjoy lunar New Year dinners, and and there's many different crafts that uh, families can do with their kids. Has it been a bit challenging this year, though, given the pandemic? And once again, we're kind of worrying about the restrictions. Yeah, we were we were all geared to uh, having an in-person event and having a big celebration on uh, this coming weekend at the Art Gallery Plaza. Unfortunately, you know the turn of events <laughs> that we had turned some of the events virtually. Uh, however, we still have these large installations that we call the Lantern City. And they've been they've been uh, going on since t- 2019, and so it's a great way for people to enjoy uh, uh, our diversity through these lanterns, and it's a it's a very different way of celebrating Lunar New Year here in Vancouver. So, what are some of the ways that we can all participate in this? Okay, so first of all, I think the celebration is actually in, in it's, it's an inspiration to us. You know, it's more than just uh, uh, you know my family. And, and our definition of family is everyone who lives in Vancouver, BC, or Canada. So our festival would love to have everyone to be able to see themselves or imagine themselves being part of this tradition. So our project, the Lantern City, currently has the, these lanterns, like I said, in downtown Vancouver, West End, Granville Island. And we invite everyone to see how your community can be represented in these lanterns. For example, uh, at the Vancouver Art Gallery, we have South Asian artists. And, and uh, at the Granville Island, we have uh, in, indigenous artists as well as the Taiwanese artists, uh, uh, in Taiwan, indigenous artists from Taiwan that are all being part of this, this uh, event. And Jody Brimfield, uh, who actually designed the, uh, the Olympic uh, coin that we have in 2010, uh, also has his work displayed at the 
uh, Granville Island. So we, these lanterns are a way of us telling you how we can celebrate differently from everyone else in the world. Uh, because we're trying to make sure everyone in Vancouver gets to be part of this tradition. Oh, this is so lovely, Charlie. Is that a very kind of unique Vancouver approach to this? Yeah, this is that's something that we started with the Destination Vancouver back in 2019 because we want to make Vancouver the top destination for Lunar New Year celebration in North America. So the way that we want to do it is actually to reflect our community here. And, and letting everyone to, uh, to, be, to be part of this. And we also have gone to schools. Uh, we visited 2,000 two, uh, uh, students uh, in, uh, in, in Richmond and Vancouver and, and trying to tell them stories about this and even inspire them to make sure this celebration is it's celebrated with a purpose. You know, this is the Year of the Tigers, so we are hoping that people can uh, just not think about the, the, the strength or or, or the, the, the power of tigers, but also to see how we as humans uh, can actually bring nature and, and, and uh, together and, and make sure that we protect, uh, you know, these wild, wild animals as well and make sure they're not, um, they're not uh, extinct uh, in, the, in the future. What, what does it mean to say Year of the Tiger? Because I know I'm Year of the Pig, so I know every, everything is different. What does Year of the Tiger mean? Well, Year of the Tiger is, is uh, you know, supposed to, supposed to be strength and endurance. And, uh, however, we also know that uh, we, we like, like to use these symbols uh, to actually to, to say something about the year. But I think it's more together to, to see the uniqueness in tigers. They're a solitary animal, but they actually look after each other in their streak, right? So we want uh, this Year of the Tiger to be something that we look after each other, look after each other in, in, the, in our community, and especially in this, uh, in this time of the, uh, of the world, that, that we, we actually need to really look after each other. Oh, that's a great sentiment for this. That th- people are looking for something to celebrate, right? They're looking for something fun to do. Well, we have, uh, and this, this coming weekend, we, we actually turn our fortune-telling sessions uh, virtually. So you actually can uh, do a, virtu- uh, a virtual Zoom uh, fortune telling, and you can experience different type of vo- for, uh, fortune telling. You know, there's a Mongolian uh, virtual telling, uh, vir- uh, fortune telling that you can actually try, uh, which is different from tarot reading or palm reading. Uh, but there's different type of fortune telling people can actually uh, get to do that. And, it's, and, and I mentioned earlier, we have lunar eats. And so there's uh, a three words that we want people to actually try to uh, imagine their dinner uh, to kind of go with it. And it's fulfilled. Uh, and fortune and good. So think about the dinners you're having and then think about how these words would actually mean to you uh, when you're having dinner. What are the words again? Fulfilled, fortune, and good. So those, those words should apply to our dinner tonight to help celebrate Lunar New Year. Or you can imagine how your food would, would you know, how these words would inspire you to actually have uh, uh, a bit of meaningfulness to your dinner tonight. I love this idea. Okay, Charlie, where can people get more information? What is the website? Uh, the website is lunarfestvancouver.ca or thelantoncity.ca. Okay, and it's not too late to participate, right? There's still things people can do today. Oh, we, we have our lantern installation to, uh, 20, uh, to, the, to the February 9th at Vancouver Art Gallery and 21st at the uh, Granville Island. So there's still lots of time. All right, sounds good. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Amy. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. That's Charlie Wu, the Managing Director at the Asian Canadian Special Events Association, talking about this year's Lunar Fest. Lots of great ways for you to participate, but also 
such a simple idea too, is to just view your meal tonight, your dinner tonight with those three words uh, to give them some significance for the new year. I love it. I also love, you know, holidays that deal with food. It's all good stuff. We can all join in on that. Now, coming up next on the show, we're going to be talking about board games. I love a good board game. Board games are very big in my family. Our family game nights do tend to get a little too competitive at my house. And anybody who knows my family is probably also laughing along with me right now that yes, it is definitely elbows up on family game night at my house. They are very popular right now, board games. And we've got a guest who's going to be telling us about how he actually designs board games. This is what Jay Cormier does for a living. He is a board game designer. And right now, it is hot, hot, hot out there. I've always wondered about this. Like, how do you come up with a new board game to play? This is Mornings with Simi. We are big board game fans at my house. Actually, nobody bigger than my daughter who collects them like crazy and is always trying something new and roping us all in. And now I know why she has the ability to do that. It's because people like our next guest who are constantly designing new board games for us to try. Jay Cormier joins us now. He's a Vancouver-based board game designer. He's been doing this for 17 years. Jay, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. It's awesome. What makes a good board game, Jay? Well, I mean, uh, different board games for different people, but I mean, you, you want to make a game that's accessible so that uh, it's easy to get into. The big biggest barrier for, for any board game is rules. People just, just hate you know reading rules, which is probably why the old classics that we all remember growing up, all the Monopolies and Clues and Stories are still selling today is because... Um, older people like me, they they, they think with their kids, they got to buy a game. They're like, well, I know how to play this game. I'll just buy that. But slowly, more and more of these other games that are becoming uh, being designed right now are getting sold because uh, once in a while, somebody you know like me or like your daughter it sounds like buys a new game and, and shows it to uh, uh, their friends or their family, and it, other people are like, that 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 was a pretty neat game. Uh, is there anything yeah. more like that? Yeah, she's she's constantly roping us into playing new games. So Jay, how did you get started doing this? How does one become a board game designer? Yeah, I think it's like any other creative medium where it's when if you like something and 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 if you are a creative person yourself, you just start going like you know I could I could do something like this maybe. So me and my buddy Sen, we just started saying let's let's do it. And and actually when we first started, it was even before seventeen years ago, and we failed miserably, and we we couldn't make it. We didn't understand how it worked, and so we gave up. And it wasn't actually until I relocated out to BC. I'm originally from Ontario, where we needed to stay in contact with each other. And we said, "Why don't we? Why don't we use board games as a way to stay in contact with each other?" And so, yeah, let's do that. So, because we were now, you know, provinces apart, we uh, had to use technology like online internet forums and stuff like that to, to to chat and to stay in touch. And that actually worked for us. That actually made us talk back and forth more. And lo and behold, we just kind of started designing games after games. Okay, but what is the key then? So where do you where do you even start? Well, I mean, you, you, when you play a bunch of board games, you probably start with some ideas of like, this game's kind of cool, but wouldn't it be better if you did this instead of that? And you start kind of like, not, not necessarily making like a mod of uh, of one game, but just kind of like, it'd be better if there was a game that, that did this. And so you have this idea that, like, yeah, that would be cool. And so games can start from a number of different ways. can start from a mechanic like that, where there's like, wouldn't it be cool when you rolled dice, you did this instead of that? Yeah, that would be neat. I've never seen a game that do that. But it could also start with a theme. Like, what if there were zombies, but they were in space? What would that be like? And you're like, yeah, that'd be neat. How would that work? 
And sometimes we've even had games come up with uh, just from a title. My friend San once said, um, you know, hey, here's a weird train of thought. And then he said, dot, dot, dot. Hey, that'd be a neat name for a game. And then we went off on a tangent saying, well, what would that, what would that game be about? A game called Train of Thought. And we actually made it and it actually got published. A game called Train of Thought. <laughs> I love that. I love the way this works. So so what is the key to success, though, would you say? Like, it's got to have the right yeah. balance of rules and fun and theme. Yeah. And what is the key? Uh, the key, like, I'm, I'm still actually searching for that. <laughs> That's the key to success. Uh, um, but I I. I I like to say you have to be your own MVP, and but it stands for, in my mind, it stands for you have to be motivated, and it's hard to stay motivated sometimes when you're in game design because you're full of lots of rejection in, in, in game design. Every time you design games, like you get rejected left, right, and center from publishers because it doesn't meet their needs, so you just got to find the publisher where it does meet their needs. Uh, and then you have to be versatile if you want to be a successful game designer. And so I have to try to design all sorts of different types of games, from balancing games to party games to strategy games. And then P is a positive persistence. You just got to stick with it. There's lots of rejections, so you just got to keep going and going and going and just keep following up and keep pushing it. I think strategy games are my favorite. Like if I had to play a game every day, I'd play Clue. There you go. Yeah. What about you? you? Like, what are your you favorites? Like my, yeah, you might like my uh, new game, Mind Management, because it's uh, it's kind of like a deduction game. So a lot of people are kind of comparing that. It's a it's a new one. I like strategy games as well, um, but it depends on the audience. If it's going to be my wife and friends coming over, um, then we're going to play party games. And there's a whole bunch of new types of party games that I'd love to play. Um, but yeah, strategy games, a hundred percent of my my jam. Interesting. So what are you working on right now? I'm working on a game called Harrow County. So now I've actually started publishing games. So I published my first game last year called My Management, and I'm now doing my second one. And, and I've decided that my games that I'm publishing are all based off of creator-owned comic books, if you can believe it. And so I'm now working with comic book creators in the industry of people like I adore and love, and I'm actually now collaborating with them, which is a dream come true. Um, and so Harrow County is based on a really cool comic that – uh, it's like a horror comic, and the game is going to be wild. It's hopefully going to come to a crowdfunding platform uh, this summer. This is so great. Is it tough to make a living doing this, though, Jay? I'd imagine it's pretty competitive. It well, the, the, yes and no. So, uh, impo- almost impossible to make a living from it. To make a living from it, like I, I still have a, another real job, <laughs> so it's not like I'm uh, um, making a living from it uh, on its own yet. You have to make what's called an evergreen game. Like you have to make a game that. Uh, all stores, all retail stores will buy and, and keep buying, and they will always have in stock. And if you're in this industry, you've probably heard of a game called Catan, um, yes. or maybe Carcassonne or Ticket to Ride. These are all evergreen games. You go into any game store, they'll have those games guaranteed. Uh, you need one of those in order to you know make a living from it. And there's only a handful of designers in the world that do that. So, And then from the competition side, while it's competitive, it's probably the friendliest uh, environment and industry ever like everybody helps everybody and I think it's because board games is an industry where when people buy any board game it helps all board games anybody having a game night that helps all of board game industry because that's just more people playing games and more people just kind of slowly coming over to to, to ask that that very valuable question like what else do you have what else what else is there well, if you came and saw the cupboards in my house, you would see that I am clearly helping the uh, board you. game industry for <laughs> sure. But Jay, I'm going to look for your games for sure. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Oh, boy, there's a lot going on in Ottawa this week. So you've got everything going on with the protesters and the convoy and all of that. And now you have the federal conservatives perhaps about to upend their leadership. Aaron O'Toole has a leadership review that sounds like it's going to happen tomorrow after something like 35 of his MPs signed a letter demanding just that. Let's talk more about what's going on. Alex Petillier joins us now, Global News Senior National Online Journalist. Alex, thanks for being here. Hey, good morning. How did Aaron O'Toole find himself in this position? Well, that's a big question to start. Um, look, there, I think there was a lot of dissatisfaction with Mr. O'Toole's leadership from certain segments of the Conservative caucus, not only since you know September's sort of disappointing election results that saw the party lose ground in sort of crucial, crucial places across the country, notably cities. Um, you know, that, that anger against his leadership extends further back to, um, you know, perceived flip-flopping. You know, he ran for the leadership as a, quote, true blue conservative, and then, you know, ran on a platform in the general election of bringing in carbon pricing and, you know, running pretty significant deficits, like more than actually the liberals projected over, over the, the medium term. So, I think that there was a lot of sort of hurt feelings among some segments of the conservative party that thought they were being sold one bill of goods and, and ended up with another. Um, and that's sort of been simmering, uh, especially since the election, because, right. you know, obviously the strategy didn't work. Okay, so how did he end up in this position where this is going to happen tomorrow? Like how many MPs signed this letter? What's going on? Mm-hmm. So, so based on what I could tell last night, this broke sort of late last night. Uh, the Globe and Mail had, had the story up first, and I was able to confirm some of the details. 35 MPs have signed onto the petition. That's over the threshold that's required to force a vote at tomorrow's caucus meeting. Uh, you know, the people who are lined up against O'Toole, we still don't know all of their names. I, of course, know, know some of them. Um, but they believe that there are many more MPs in the caucus that are willing to, if not sign the petition to get things rolling, then, then vote to, to have a leadership review. Of course, you know, Aaron O'Toole could run in a, in a leadership contest if he, if he thinks he really has the support of the party membership. Um, but, you know, we've never seen that happen in, in Canadian political history, at least modern Canadian political history. So it really is a very difficult spot that, that Aaron O'Toole has found himself in. Right. OK. And so this is going to happen. Does he know how much support he has at this point? And even if this if he manages to survive tomorrow, is that the end of it? Yeah, another big question. Um, I don't think anybody has a firm grasp on how the vote is going to go tomorrow. You know, if you talk to the anti-O'Toole folks, they feel that they have more than enough votes to to force them out. If you talk to some of Aaron O'Toole's people, you know, over the last number of months, they felt that they had enough caucus support that if anybody actually came out against Aaron, uh, they'd be able to, you know, force those people out of caucus. So it really depends on, on who you talk to in terms of what kind of spin you're getting. In terms of can he survive even if, you know, he survives the vote tomorrow? I think it's, it's fair to say that he is in a significantly weakened position just by the fact that 35 MPs are willing to, you know, put their names forward, um, you know, and risk some pretty significant political consequences to try and force him out. We've never seen this happen, um, you know, in Conservative Party history. Uh, the, the closest you'd, you'd, you'd get would be, you know, the situation that Stockwell Day found himself in back in the Canadian Alliance days, which I'm sure, sure some of your listeners will remember. Um, and then for the 35 Conservative MPs, if they don't force him out tomorrow, I think it's a, it's a real question as to what they do, right? Yeah. Will they continue to sit as a Conservative uh, MP? I don't see how they could, right? Because if you're a Conservative MP who supports Aaron O'Toole, 
and you know that these 35 people are actively trying to undermine your leader, how can you, you know, go behind closed doors with them and discuss party policy and discuss strategy? Exactly. It doesn't seem tenable to me. It doesn't. All right, Alex, thanks so much for that this morning. Anytime. Take- this is Mornings with Simi. Time to check in with our Raji Sohal this morning because she is also talking about taking part in Lunar New Year. I just love this because anything, Raji, that has to do with food, I am all in. <laughs> I'm with you on that, Simi, for sure. Well, we've all been hearing that uh, it's Year of the Tiger starting today, and that has to do a lot with strength and endurance. But I talked to three different Chinese astrology enthusiasts for what lies ahead, and actually I heard three varying very different opinions. There wasn't consensus. So one, I heard that if it's your year, like if you are year of the tiger, born in the year of the tiger, then your own year tends to be uneventful. So no big highs, no big lows. Uh, For me, I love that kind of stuff. I'm all for the middle path. And then two, it's not supposed to be a particularly year for those who, uh, particularly lucky year for those born in a tiger year. But apparently you can turn it around by having as many celebrations as possible. And that is really neat because uh, that's an easy fix. And then for everyone else, for all of us, this is supposed to be a quiet year ahead as the tiger lies in wait for year of the rabbit and all the good luck that that's going to bring next year. So since today is the actual first day of Lunar New Year, um, a lot of people are going to be giving out those those red pockets, the, the small classic red envelopes with money in them. So kids tend to look forward to that year round. And whereas a lot of families would have had their big feast uh, on the weekend or even last night, I know you said you got to making some dumplings. Sure um, did. And our producer, uh, Greg Schott, uh, got to have hot pot with his family, all really fun stuff. Well, today, a lot of people will have a cold dish. Uh, many people will do it traditionally and have a vegetarian dish that's made of black mushrooms and white chestnut. But there's so much more to be aware of besides all of that amazing uh, food. I talked to Vivian Lung. She's a culture reporter with the Richmond News. And she said traditionally, cleaning, cleaning the house is a really big part of the Lunar New Year time. And she said the superstition and ritual around it uh, have tended to stick around. A lot of people still practice this. And it has such an interesting backstory. There's a significance of cleaning in terms of getting rid of like the old bad luck or like the old things that um, are already kind of accumulated in your house. Um, and to make way for all the good luck that is going to come from the new year. And a lot of times we um, do a full sweep of the house. We are like fixing anything that's broken. Like maybe there's like a broken table or broken chair, um, clean your kitchen, throw out the trash, stuff like that. Um, and a lot of it also comes from uh, the Chinese word das, which is a homophone for like something that's old. And how we normally do it is that when we clean the house, we actually clean from the center of the house and then towards um, the back door. A lot of um, families in the olden days, they had like a front door and a back door and all the garbage or like all the um, dust is swept out the back door and then leaving the front door as a way for all the good luck to kind of come in. 
I love that. It's so interesting. And then that means that today, Simi, a lot of families that are celebrating uh, the Lunar New Year will not clean up the house at all. They won't do dishes. uh, They won't vacuum. They'll even make sure brooms are out of sight just to make sure that all the good luck stays in the house today. And they might do that for a couple of days. And a lot of cultures have uh, rituals around cleaning and superstition around that, including my own. So I thought that was a really interesting one. And then also, um, Simi, when we hear of all of these delicacies that people are consuming these days for the Lunar New Year, like special things like daikon cakes, I wondered, like, these things are surely made traditionally in the homeland a lot more. But when people immigrate here, how much of that know-how is even passed on uh, from elders to the next generation? I look at my own family. I was born here and I couldn't dream, Simi, of making half the stuff that like my mom or my grandma would have made that I feel like takes a lifelong uh, expertise of making. And that, to Valerie Lung, is, she says, kind of sad. Honestly, I find my parents' generation of celebrating Lunar New Year is way more fun than I have ever celebrated here in Canada. Because in Asia, you have the firecrackers going off um, in like in their villages or in their towns back then when they were kids. They had like the lion dances um, like on the streets, like like the, the environment and the energy from Lunar New Year's is definitely different from what I hear in it's just not as exciting from what um, I hear from my parents, and I'm kind of jealous of them for that. That was Valerie Lung from uh, the Richmond News. But for Grace Wong, who's the chair of the Chinese Canadian Museum Society, she sees it differently. Uh, she says the culture has spread more here, and now a lot of stuff she says that wasn't available commercially before you can see everywhere around town. But yes, those specialties, she thinks, uh, might be dying off in households in terms of people making it in-house, but they're still buying them in stores instead. Here's Grace Wong. I, I think in the lower mainland here, for example, um, you know, I, I think with the um, mixture of in our demographics, you know, it, it's become, if anything, even more vibrant. There, there is so much attention to Lunar New Year in some ways, uh, partly because of the retailing opportunities, I'm sure. Uh, so, you know, you see decorations in the malls, you see. Um, so, so in that sense, it's becoming actually wider embraced. And I think that's just lovely. Uh, people are almost more conscious of it. You know, some of the deeper, again, how to make the foods, but then similarly, it means that when it's more um, widespread attention, then people start being intrigued by, well, oh, how do you make that dish? Or are there recipes? And I love that. I, see, that to me is one of the great things about our, our region, our place where we live, is that you can participate in all of this. Yeah. And also, I think cultures get adapted, right? At the same time that we might lose some stuff like elaborate recipes just due to lack of convenience, there's always someone, right, who takes enough interest to revitalize it, revitalize it and, and share it with other people, uh, maybe open some kind of bakery that caters to it and that kind of thing. So I love that stuff. And I just want to let everyone know that there is some awesome stuff going on this weekend uh, at the Chinese Canadian Museum Society. That's the one uh, at the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden in Vancouver's uh, Chinatown. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this Friday to Sunday, 
awesome calligraphy demonstrations. I just love watching that stuff. They're doing a Red Lucky envelope giveaway and then outdoor lion and dragon dance from some incredible martial artists. And just the entire district is going to be really festive. So encourage people to check it out. You had me at calligraphy demonstration. So I just find that so hypnotic to watch it being done. So I'm in. Uh, Thank you so much for that, Raji. Thank you, Simeon. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. That is our Reggie Sohal there talking about all sorts of great Lunar New Year news information and events that are going on.